Sage's Stories. Welcome to today's episode of Sage's Stories, the official podcast of Sage's, the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons. Please make sure to hit the like button and subscribe so you can stay up to date with our most recent episode and enjoy the show. Okay. Yeah. Here we go with episode four of Sage's Stories, where we shine the light on some of Sage's most impactful leaders. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kevin L. Hayek, coming to you from sunny California. That's right. That's but that's, wait, right. that's my hood. That's your hood. But you're from Cleveland. That's right. And yet you're in California. I am in California today. I think everyone ends up in California. You, uh, you invited me last time. Yes. It was starting to get a little cold in Cleveland. So I came out for this very special Sage's Stories. So... This is going to be one of our most special stages stories. First of all, uh, and least of all, it's because I'm in presence of Kevin L. Hayek, <laughs> my co-host. But most of all, because we are here at the home and residence of our dear, iconic Dr. George Bursey. Good morning. There we go. We're so happy to be here with you today. Thank Good. you. Thank you for spending the morning with us here. So those of you that are Sages members all know Dr. Bercy. He is one of our uh, leaders, one of the original founders and the most notable of Sages members. Um, I'm very lucky to have him in Los Angeles. I get to see him at my hospital uh, very early mornings because you're there. What time do you get to the hospital? Well, I'm getting there at seven o'clock in the morning. Why so late? Uh, well, sometimes six thirty. You know? I've seen you before six a.m. Yeah, it's happened. Yes. Six a.m. is when I took my dog off. <laughs> this is right. <laughs> so, Sage's Stories is a relatively new podcast, and it is our goal to highlight unique stories of our guests. And at 101 and a half years young, there's no doubt that you will have a few stories to share with us. And I imagine looking back at these archives in a few years, we will remember episode four as one of the most fascinating to us. Uh, many of our listeners will also know that there is a great book about your life so far, which is free to members who support the Sages Foundation. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And certainly I recommend everyone to read that book. It, it is just a great summary of, of what you've done so far. We always like to start with just hearing a little bit about our guests, a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and um, just a little intro to your early years. Uh, well, as you know, I'm afraid I'm a very mature person today, <laughs> being 100 years old. Uh, <clears throat> But uh, I had a very difficult background. As you know, I was born in Hungary and uh, spent 15 years in Vienna. Uh, came back to Hungary, um, was called in 1942, a labor camp. My family 
from 40 members, there are two survivors, uh, and went through the <clears throat> revolution part. And in 1956, I was able to, with my family, to escape to Australia. Uh, you could imagine I arrived there now, a language knowledge, uh, but I received, fortunately, a Rockefeller Award in Vienna, which helped me. And I started to uh, introduce endoscopic surgery. It was very primitive, uh, and I, practically speaking, gave it up because the results were very poor. I was extremely lucky that I went to a lecture to London, and I somehow became informed with a physicist uh, called Hopkins, who invented a new light system and a new optical system. The optical system was crucial because it's smaller in size and developed a magnificent image. Endoscopy is looking. And uh, endoscopy is uh, seeing something in a more um, detailed, more enlarged way. I was knowledgeable a little bit approximately about endoscopy and I developed the first miniature TV camera in 1962 in Australia. And hooking up to the Hopkins system, we created an increasingly improved image. Uh, this was one of the major issue that this was accepted, produced now by several companies that today laparoscopic uh, uh, surgery is so well accepted. The uh, uh, area was the states. Laparoscopic surgery was done. I wrote a book earlier, again, it was not accepted. But in 1989, it became a very important aspect for the patients because there was less pain, a shorter hospitalization, and faster return to work. These three important aspects in surgery were created a demanding patient's procedure. And here we are with many thousand surgeons in 1989 uh, who were non-informed, not trained for this procedure, demanded that their surgery should be, uh, surgery should be performed and uh, in an easier, better way. Society of American GI endoscopic surgery are well known by a colleague, Marx, who established in the late 80s uh, about uh, flexible endoscopy, upper GI called gastroscopy or the lower colonoscopy. This is also something to do with the Hopkins system because his uh, certain part of optics, the flexible optics, was also uh, reported by Hopkins and changed here the world. Here we are in 1989, where thousands of surgeons are requested uh, to be taught. Sages immediately noticed this important aspect and 
started to first with a training the training, training the trainer courses mm -hmm. every weekend in every other citizens in the States. We held uh, courses with a maximum acceptance of 10 uh, colleagues and started to train laparoscopic surgery on pigs. Of course, we also trained uh, trainers. And in uh, the first two years, SAGES was a dominant factor that today thousands uh, surgeons performing laparoscopic surgery in the United States. The first area uh, was uh, the, the biliary system. We have today one million gallbladder removal of cholecystectomies per year. It's a tremendous number where 10 or 12, 20,000, 10 or 20,000 surgeons performing here. But it, it's immediately spread further. The other large area or the immense area was urology because uh, prostate, megaly or enlarged prostate is a huge uh, area. Millions of uh, male in many countries uh, have problems and need open surgery. And a large number of these cases can be performed today uh, laparoscopically or through the cystoscope. Therefore, this was another area where we immediately changed surgery to better patient's care mm. with less hospitalization um, and faster return to work. So how, when did you end up working your way to the United States? So you were in, in Australia and then the UK? I, I became invited from Cedar sinai Medical Center in 1975. Uh, Dr. Morgenstern was the director of surgery. Yes. Uh, in the beginning, he didn't believe that we can do something, but he gave me a chance and therefore uh, we started the first cases here in 89. Great help was at Phillips. And of course, every surgeon uh, demanded to be trained. Therefore, at CEDARS, we did it pro 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 approximately every day that we uh, trained surgeons. And this is where the uh, important changes occur. So I'm curious, as a surgeon, how did you get interested in optics? How did you go from being a physician to doing something very kind of engineering, physics-based? Well, I, I had uh, previously three years of mechanical engineering mm -hmm. before, which helped me significantly in later design. But the vision was obvious for me. In 1960, I started to do endoscopy and looking through a small monocular eyepiece mm -hmm. where you see only a restricted area where you have difficulty to see in the illumination you can't teach, you, you cannot record. Recording is crucially. This gave me the idea when I saw later on the Hopkins system that we changed the entire technique and results. Yes. Yeah. And 
how did you get involved with the comp you know the company at that time so this was an industry eventually it moved to industry from the concept well when i saw the prototype in 1959 uh, of course i'm not a <clears throat> mechanical uh, company or engine uh, producing uh, systems i looked around but unfortunately none of the largest company who became known from this one became interested and i found a little german company who was interested uh, in developing prototypes what year was that well um 60s uh, 60s 60s early 60s and, uh, what did you know carl Stortz before that time? yes yes I know him um I was interested in certain bronchoscopes where he had some ideas. Uh, therefore, I had no other uh, possibilities after find out that ACMI, uh, the French uh, group, uh, was not interested. And uh, I met him that time. Car Schwartz was a little company in a, a small city, Tuttlingen in Germany, with 25 workers. Today, wow. they have 5,000. Well, uh, it is a great step forward because amongst surgery, uh, uh, the chest, uh, in other words, thoracoscopic surgery was a normal big area. Again, I want to emphasize, of course, uh, cystoscopy and urology was number one, but there was another area which we found later on, important. this is anesthesia. Mm -hmm. The intubation in yeah. yeah. 1941 by, by yeah, was a step forward. It was a little light on the uh, uh, curved mm -hmm. rinkoscope. Yeah. And as soon as we put this in, the you camera. could imagine you see the enlarged, this changed on this theology. And were you doing all this as a crusader, as, as a maverick being the first, or was there someone either a mentor or a professor or someone that you could seek guidance from or who helped you through the process? Well, I had already, when we introduced it from urology, general surgery, we had responses. The most important was the patients were very impressed yeah. and demanding. Yeah. Right? Uh, therefore, this was a great help. And if you could imagine for the first two years being at at uh, weekends in several other cities. And you get immediately the response back that you see that here we have something which is uh, internationally interesting, but most important, it is a new surgical procedure which will change the outcome of surgery. And this is where we are today. I mean, you, you mentioned that, and I know, from reading that it wasn't easy and there was a lot of resistance uh, from, from the traditional surgical field. How did you handle that? And, you know, what was that like to go through that type of struggle with your peers and colleagues and senior surgeons? And well, I'll be honest, it's a hundred bucks uh, question. <laughs> uh, it was extremely difficult because 
I myself have a couple of years behind me, but you're talking to guys, for instance, who did cholecystectomy for decades. Mm-hmm. And how can you tell them that, listen, I do this, I have very good results. Uh, our ductal injuries is small, which is not there where we need still improvement. Um, it was very, the, the major issue was the patient. Mm. Patient demanded, and there's no question, a patient went back home after a gallbladder surgery next day. Today, yeah. many patients going in a, come, uh, come out from the hospital on the same day. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they, these are factors. Mm-hmm. Not speaking in urology, where somebody goes in and get a, is a certain group where they can do a prostatectomy. All right. Did the hospitals uh, want you to bring these in, or did they say, no, this is not standard of care? We won't allow you to do laparoscopic surgery. I have to tell you, it was like a revolution. I mean, uh, <clears throat> because in every larger city in the first couple of years, some hospitals already introduced it, some hospitals already published. The newspapers were full. Mm-hmm. Therefore, this was a dominant factor that in certain areas of the city, they're doing it already better, faster, etc. Mm. And that was in the, in the private sector more than the, than the academic from what? Well, academic was, I speaking only from LA, I was a member of the academic department here. It was slow. Mm-hmm. But even there, after a year, uh, people became convinced that that's uh, the future, the technique, the future surgery. And it, it really changed around. And uh, there are a lot of problems still today which need improvement. Um, I'm working on certain areas where we definitely need further improvement. Uh, uh, to uh, introduce a technique which is better than the others. But there's no question that endoscopic surgery changed surgery. Yeah, no doubt. And at that time, um, SAGE's starts, 83. Talk a little bit about your involvement in that and how this came to be, this society. Well, <clears throat> I was introduced by Mark Stettem with a couple of hundred surgeons involved who claimed that they do uh, colorectal surgery. And the very important uh, pre-surgery uh, colonoscopy or gastroscopy was done by GI guys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they started to do it. There was enormous resistance amongst the GI guy to accept the surgeon. And yes, we put here, uh, CEDAS was the number two in 1975, where we introduced colonoscopy as for surgeons. Interestingly enough, surgeons were not very much interested because the other side of the story, which is very well known is, what is the reimbursement? Mm-hmm. And uh, people came to me, surgeons told me, said, have a look, I'm doing a hernia in local for an hour or within an hour, 
and I get this amount of dollars. And this takes me a little bit of time, colonoscopy too, and I got only the half. Mm. But this was a very yeah. important aspect. Uh, but later on, of course, it changed. And, and sages, that time we are 600, today there is 7,000. Right. And how busy were you clinically at that time? Were you a general surgeon that was very clinically busy? I did busy? general surgery. I thought, as you mentioned, I came relatively early in the hospital, yes. uh, teaching residents. But it, the correspondence and the, I did a significant amount of research work. Mm -hmm. And CEDAS was very well organized for this. We had the facilities there. I got the people there. Therefore, um, the endoscopic instruments uh, five years later were not the same, mm -hmm. right? I have forgotten to mention another area was, uh, of course, gynecology, Correct. Uh, which was a tremendous large area, right? To do a... a <clears throat> Uh, surgery, GYN surgery, laparoscopically instead of opening up. So you were busy clinically, you were teaching, you were also doing research. We, that's clearly what we call the, the triple threat. How, how did you balance the research side and how did you decide what to take on, what projects were worthwhile? How would you counsel someone who's trying to do research now? with busy clinical, busy teaching? Well, I had two days in the week where we went to the research lab and spent on new projects. Uh, and and not Saturday and Sunday, right? Saturday and Sunday, I wrote the paper. You wrote the papers on Saturday. Yeah. So that's the trick, right? So the, yeah, I had problems with my children, big house. Uh, I did also. Uh, night uh, sessions you took on call the, as weekend. well yeah sure oh, yeah. on oh, the nice. weekend i slept you know yeah <laughs> it was a very difficult life uh, uh and summarized i'm very happy that i did it and looking back uh, there is a book which is it the book is about two uh, topics one i found 40 years ago a German surgeon who published a cholecystectomy at the turn of the century. He published 2,000 cases. It was printed. 2,000. His name is Kerr. Okay. And okay. Uh, people were not interested, perhaps they were uh, uncomfortable that they didn't have so many cases. But this guy produced a book. 500 pages where number one in hundred years ago he mentioned that we have to train young surgeons mm -hmm. and train them also in anesthesia that time people haven't a clue hundred years ago then he described how to do surgery how to take a history what impressed me when i got the book and that of course, was very busy. That's why I read only a, a few pages. The time is that he had a artist he built a podium behind him. The artist take him five, five or eight months to learn the anatomy. He made color drawings in 3D about surgery. 
Mm. And nobody did notice. Therefore, I took this book of 490 pages and the last three years, and I translated it to 60 pages. For the rest of us, yes. And then I took the color pictures because if you have a look, you can see what difficult it is. But I had a very good uh, technician whom we redid it, the printing, that you get the 3D effect. But could you imagine 100 years ago, he was interested to have color records of a he had large Care, number yeah. K-E-R-R, right? K-E-H-R. Now this guy did something at that time, of course, the majority of patients were jaundiced. I've right. run around with the gold brother for years. Right. Now, this guy found out that there's a large number of incidents of CBD stones. Mm. It's another subject for today where we still have to improve our situation. And what he did, he found, I don't know what it was, a very malleable little tiny probe. Wherever he incised the cystic duct, he put it in, mm. and if he found resistance, I opened up and found the stone. Oh, wow. mm. After this was the early idea about cholesterol. Mm. So I'm curious what your take is as a inventor and promoter of new technology. We're getting to a point where residents are getting very good at laparoscopic surgery for gallbladder surgery, hernias, most things, appendicitis, but they've lost their ability to perform open surgery. So what's your take on that? Are you okay seeing that transition? Or do you feel that we need to start teaching uh, open more? The summary of my way of thinking after 33 years of introducing it is that we did a tremendous work in, in starting to learn new technique uh, and using it properly, but we don't have a proper recording system. This is number one. Number two, we didn't spend enough time with the residents. You mean an open? or well, an open, open yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. There, uh, this is one great area where mm -hmm. the various associations, ACS and SAGES, in future I have to achieve mm -hmm. some changes mm -hmm. in the training. Yes. The other one, you could imagine when I mentioned before, we had one million cholecystectomies laparoscopically. Out of this 10% of CVD stones, yes. this is 100,000 patients. The majority of surgeons are not trained how to do a operative imaging, a coronal Yeah. They are not trained how to use a coronal And today, 100,000 surgeons must have a, patients must have a ERC. So Kevin, so, Kevin, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 wanted, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. You know, the, Go ahead. What is the, sur so first, the surgeon's role in the bile duct. I, a few years ago, you reached out to me uh, through Jeff Ponsky uh, to talk a little bit about the move to high definition colidoscopy because before the, 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 you know, the image wasn't very great. And uh, since then, there've been a number of new devices that have emerged. Um, and and you, you actually inspired me to really 
I, what I would say, take back the bile duct in many respects as a surgeon. What, and I do routine cholangiogram and it's always brought up in my cases. And, and actually last night I, I had one of these cases where <laughs> I did a cholangiogram and I saw a bile duct filled with stones. And I had the setup to do the bile duct exploration. We did it, patient went home this morning. So what is, what is the role of the surgeon in the bile duct? And how should this be treated in the future? Well, you can't change the present political situation. Um, because I think there are so much politics involved that you have here, I don't know how many thousand surgeons who are doing it, but have no idea to do an operative cholangiogram. Yeah. You right. have no idea to use the cholangiogram. Yeah. You can't get them out for a training. Mm -hmm. There is only one solution that 5% of these 100,000 patients with pancreatitis. Yes. 5%. Yes. yes. Uh, and a stent. They all get a stent. Yeah. They all get a second procedure to get the stent out. Yeah. Right? So it's three procedures. The, There's the a mortality are, associated with the There is yeah. only one solution that the two large societies, the American College of Surgeons and SAGES, uh, found. Uh, have this data. There's nothing new what I'm telling here. Everybody knows it. It's in print. There are 2020 uh, annals of surgery, <clears throat> editorial. It's printed. But you have 200 surgical residency programs in this country. Mm -hmm. Every residence in five years performs 100 choristectomies. Mm -hmm. He has the knowledge. To introduce to this residents on the fourth year intraoperative imaging in corridoroscopy is not a problem. Right. And okay. then you're creating a better trained biliary surgeon and you're saving. There's no question that the bile duct injury, which is a catastrophe, right. is higher. We don't have proper numbers. Right. This is so my answer has, to your question. It has to be a pipeline, it has to start with the residents then. And the yeah, yeah, you can't change that, right? Right. Yeah. But therefore, I did so that's where give I a, a analogies to yeah. the politics. Right? Yes. You can't change it. You're right. No, you're right. So as part of Sages, were you were you among the handful of surgeons that got together saying it's important to develop such a society? Uh, well, I there is no question that when uh, we came to the stage of laparoscopy, mm -hmm. uh, then I got a large number of uh, sages, uh, members who were interested, help uh, trained, trained people. In other words, uh, there was a, a big uh, step forward called training the trainers, Train the trainers. by sages. Uh, today, there are 7,000 people. But before, before sages became a bona fide society, yeah. did a bunch of you sit around at someone's dinner table and say we should make our own society or how did that? Now, this was triggered by a French surgeon that changes sages. I was only one voice there, mm -hmm. a couple of voices called Perissant, mm -hmm. who brought to the sages meeting a video. 
Uh, and uh, this was far before I was really. And uh, we were able to show it to uh, the committees and uh, to convince them that we have to do something. This was a turning point, it was a great help. So you went on to become the 11th uh, president of SAGES in 1993. How was the society viewed by other major societies at the time, places like ACS and some of the SSAT, for example, some of the older societies? What was, when you came, became president, what were some of the you know, environments like with these other societies? <laughs> Sorry, it came to my, uh, I did it. If I would uh, compare this to the situation, <laughs> uh, sure. you know, yeah. you can't, uh, <laughs> you have two parties, and I couldn't come to a common denominator. <laughs> right here is my answer. Yes. But, uh, uh, it was a very slow process. And again, it was very remarkable that other disciplines like thoracic surgery, GY, and urology took over. Mm. Where they don't have the problem, as far as I know, that we're leaving 100,000 people to have ERCP. You're right, I think you're right. Uh, it, it's different there. Yeah. But uh, surgical societies have to wake up and see whether the figures that we are quoting are correct and do something. Again, you cannot change the situation. There, it, it's only one hope that uh, the surgical residency programs will be improved. So you, uh, you very briefly talked about your family. We all know Barbara, um, but we don't know much about your children. I've had the pleasure of meeting some of your children and grandchildren at many of the award ceremonies that have honored you uh, locally in Los Angeles but maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, your family and also how they dealt with all of the work you were doing. You were so busy and traveling and inventing. How did, were you able to you know, also play the role of a father and husband and balance all of that? This is a very difficult uh, question. Because no question that they suffered. As I mentioned briefly, I slept a lot on the weekends. Um, in the early stage, I was not very much involved uh, in the kids. It was interesting that uh, the kids started uh, early uh, tuitions in schools in Australia, mm -hmm. the British oh. system. Okay. And it's completely different. Okay. I didn't understand there, everybody had a uniform. Everybody was the same, right? There, there were no jeans with the whole hole on the knee <laughs> side yes. and so forth. But they were here very well accepted. They know quite a bit. Therefore, the system, teaching system in the British system, what I can was better. Back again, I. I was able to help uh, uh, my son, who became an engineer, who was a famous skier, and who became immediately the 
team captain from UCLA. Oh. But on the weekend, they went training. When he came back on, on Saturday, um, they slept on Monday in the school, uh, UCLA. Mm -hmm. uh, he became a dean's dismissal. And therefore, <laughs> I started to, uh, to become involved and I helped him to get his degree somewhere else. But there aspect, there is no question that I had less time to uh, uh, involved in the education of my kids. One of my kids, unfortunately, died to well, went back to Australia. Sorry. But uh, uh, my son, Winton, and uh, my daughter, Kitty, they are here. Of course, they are mature, my family. But to answer the question, now, if you have only 24 hours and you spend uh, 14 hours in a certain project, uh, it's difficult. But that's, uh, I'm very happy that they are okay. How many Sages meetings have you attended? <laughs> many. How many have you not attended? Yeah. Have, have you ever missed a meeting? Uh, recently, I'm missing. Uh, but no. Uh, we had so many uh, uh, interesting problems to solve on a yearly basis, yeah. you know. Uh, we had so many uh, interesting ideas came from outside uh, that uh, it was a, I think laparoscopic surgery would be nowhere without surgeons. Oh, I agree. Oh, for sure. Because you have 6,000 people, uh, surgeons today. Yeah. 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 So this final segment is one of our most uh, fun segments. Uh, we feel that um, we, we all love Sages of Society, but the meeting itself is, is kind of very unique among most meetings. So we call this the We Are the Sages segment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is our singing notes. On the, yes. And on the very last and we have fun. We do have fun, just like this podcast at the very last, and yeah. we have fun. So um, I, I remember multiple times during the We Are the Sages uh, final uh, gala, the sing-along, um, uh, I've seen you wear multiple different costumes. You have performed up. I you performed up there. My favorite was when you wore the Indian chief long headgear that dragged the floor. <laughs> that was. I'm sorry. Was, <laughs> I was told to do it. <laughs> yes, and you did. <laughs> um, so maybe you can take this time to share some stories that we don't know about. Something fun, interesting a unique, memorable, about the actual meetings in the past? Well, uh, uh, it was very important to me, who was member in other countries of societies. Mm -hmm. It was really uh, the British one. You, know? you have yeah, the various castes. Yes. Yeah. And uh, compared with this, it was for me, a, um, great fun. I, did. I was proud. 
I have to admit, despite my comments, that I was the first, uh, I call it bloody foreigner, who get <laughs> a department uh, <clears throat> title, you know, so they were very nice to me. Uh, therefore, I can't... Uh, you can't pick one. No, I can't pick one. <laughs> Here, I, I mean, uh, the, we have, we had funds. I hardly can remember because the majority what I get topics were problems to solve. Yes. You know, and on the weekend, you know, then was it uh, Jeff Ponsky, was uh, Boston and so forth. They came with problems, they can't solve it. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I found out how we can solve it uh, politically, professionally, you know. I had many, many friends uh, and colleagues and uh, uh, it was nice. I mean, Green did a super job. Yes, he's great. Yeah, who, who uh, was editor of the surgical journal for all the years. But it brought us together. I, despite the fact that I don't remember what I sang or what I <laughs> did as a... Uh, <clears throat> Indian sheriff or whatever yes. it was, is that you get closer mm -hmm. yeah. as other society meetings. Very yes. much, very much. This is what stages did. If I compared with other surgical society meeting, it was not stiff. Yes. It was right down to the, the job. So any last words of advice for a surgeon out there who's listening who wants to leave an impactful legacy through their surgical career? Well, if it's in the biliary area, then he should consider to learn about the CBD stones, which is 10%. Uh, we don't have figures, but there is a very important aspect that but the bile duct injury has a tremendous high mortality. It's interesting, I wrote, published a lot. Um, we had a, a mortality of 0.3% for open surgery. In the first two years, it went skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. Today, we don't have proper records. Therefore, there is one for the surgeons who are in a position of can afford time-wise to learn a little bit, learn this two aspects and uh, complete the biliary surgery in one surgical procedure, what we did before. This is, would be the greatest uh, contribution uh, to patient's care. Well, that was wonderful. I just want to really thank you for your time. Yep. Uh, it's a Friday morning. You've gifted us with your time, Kevin, so all the way from Cleveland to take this momentous moment with you and I'm very privileged to have you locally. So I hope to see you around the hospital again. You will? You're, well, I mean, you're always at M&M and Grand Rounds <laughs> before <laughs> everyone else. <laughs> and that wraps up today's episode of Sage's Stories. You can view the show notes for additional information mentioned on the show. Also, please visit sages.org for membership information and for the most recent news from our society. Follow us on Twitter at Sages underscore updates. Make sure you hit the like button and subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes.
Tune in again next time. And remember, you can't spell minimally invasive surgery without sages.